What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, it's clear that the pandemic has changed consumer behaviors. It's changed how businesses conduct their business. Uh, that's very much the case in the residential real estate market. So to get some more color on that, we welcome Cheryl Palmer, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Taylor Morrison. Taylor Morrison is the fifth largest uh, home builder and developer uh, in the United States. Joins us on the phone from Scottsdale. Cheryl, thanks so much for joining us here. I know your company has been moving more towards virtual sales of uh, residential real estate. So this pandemic, I'm guessing, has accelerated that process. Talk to us about kind of how your business is changing. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for having me. Of course, you know, um, I call it the silver lining of COVID that, you know, our industry has really had to make some adjustments on how we communicate. We've, We've, you know, always been known for being a little kind of archaic in the way we build houses. But I think the first step was really how we market and interact with consumers the way they want to be interacted with. So you're absolutely right. When the pandemic started and everybody went home and we had to you know, generally lock our sales office doors and put safety protocols in, we had to you know, communicate with our buyers differently. And we had introduced a new website late last year that had an infrastructure with the intentions of really creating a virtual environment. And so what we've seen is the consumer really just loved this virtual environment. In fact, we introduced, I think it was early April, we introduced this online appointment system and our customers could schedule an appointment to either come in and meet with someone privately and get a private tour or they could schedule an appointment to be walked through a virtual 3D tour of our homes or maybe just to talk. We found about 80% of the customers still wanted to come in for that private tour, but many did not. And um, since then, we've introduced self-guided tours so they could, you know, walk into one of our inventory homes. We've introduced an online reservation system where they can just hold a house and then, you know, go directly to contract. It's been t- t- tremendous. We've had probably in the last eight, 10 weeks, um, something like 250 sales without a customer ever walking in the sales office. And your month of June was your best month ever. You sold 1,715 homes. So congratulations on that. I'm looking at your website and there really is a huge variety starting in the 230s range and going right up to, you know, even past, you know, half a million dollars in, in some areas of Arizona. What about prices, though? In general, have they been dropping during the pandemic? I would tell you that if you were to go back to late March, early April, everybody was seeking to understand what was going to happen with the consumer's 
you know, kind of mindset, what was going to happen with jobs. And I would tell you there was a freeze on prices. I don't think because the inventory has always been so tight coming into the pandemic and even tighter today. I don't think you saw this tremendous drop in prices at all. I mean, you had situations, you could have had a closeout, things that have been very typical to the industry. But in total, I'd say no, prices have held. And if anything, over the last many weeks, I would tell you that there's been very thoughtful price increases going on across the industry. But once again, you have to remember that we are sitting at very, very low inventories in both the resale and the new home market. And I think as you look at kind of the way the consumer's thinking about their relationship with the home, we've really started to see a bias to new. We've seen that, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people are moving today, right? It could be because they need more rooms, they need more office space, really around wellness features. Um, and so it's, it, has kept, it has kept prices pretty healthy. Cheryl, are you seeing, you know, the phenomena we've seen or heard about or read about since the pandemic is a kind of a de-urbanization move? And, you know, as people try to get to a less dense living environment, do you think that it's a, a, a longer term trend or maybe just a short term effect from the pandemic? It's such an important question, and it's some that's gotten a question that's gotten a lot of kind of, I'd say, chatter over the last, um, you know, 10, 12 weeks. Interestingly enough, I would tell you at the beginning, it was just that. It was a lot of talk. Um, we um, do a lot of research and talking to our buyers, our shoppers that are walking in the door, the folks that are coming on through our website. And we've been doing that every week since this started. And for the first time, I would tell you that we are seeing in our buyer data um, this, I don't want to call it a flight to rural or suburban, but we're absolutely seeing those numbers rise. And I think what you're really seeing is that people are thinking about being able to work home and not having to do those commutes. Um, being able to buy and, you know, look at the difference in what happens to prices as you move out into kind of the suburban market. Um, we are seeing a lot more interest and a lot of interest as people are in that shopping mode as well. It's not just for single family. I think that um, that's probably going to be the beneficiary. But we're seeing a lot of interest around townhomes as well. Um, but yeah, not not kind of in the center core. Cheryl, we have to leave it there, but a pleasure to speak with you. Cheryl Palmer is chairman and CEO of Taylor Morrison, based in Scottsdale, Arizona, but with a presence in many, many states, primarily Arizona and California, Colorado, Florida, but also in sort of the more north uh, states like Oregon and then uh, some of the southeastern states as well. We have Washington in there and some be really beautiful homes on this website, Paul. You could get sucked <laughs> in very easily. <laughs> I got plenty of real estate right now. Thank F you. <laughs> fifth largest home builder in the United States. So what exactly is going on in bond markets here in the United States? If you give your money away to the U.S. government for 10 years, you get 60 basis points right now, which doesn't seem like a whole lot. Let's bring in someone who's been working in the field for a long time. Tim Vogel is FHN Financial Capital Markets, and he joins us from Memphis, Tennessee. Of course, FHN is a national fixed income dealer, as we all know. Jim, are you bored right now let's just let's just be blunt about it are, are there interesting moves in the bond markets right now or are you just waiting for the fed to start getting out of the way so that you know other buyers have influence again 
Well, this week has been uh, interesting because as we came into the third quarter, people were concerned that we may not see demand at Treasury auctions to finance all the stimulus spending. Instead, we have seen an excellent response uh, to the Treasury supply, even as it grows every single month. And that's translated into lower interest rates because the fear of supply is diminished. So, Jim, let's talk about the Fed here. Um, You know, the phrase I'd like to use, and people listening kind of know this, is the Fed's kind of backstopping the market here. How long do you think they can continue to do that? Two to three years. Two to three Uh, years. Well, yes. Um, They've got a proven track record of managing expectations that long, and there's going to be a long period of time before people are convinced that the economy can recover to the point that inflation is going to return mm-hmm. and send rates up from obviously low levels. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The Fed literally with its with its forecast has, you know, sort of hinted at two to three years, if not explicitly outright said it. But it will only take for the market to get a whiff of inflation at some point if we get, you know, a, a few more gangbusters, jobs numbers or what have you for the curve to steepen quite sharply again, right, Jim? Have you seen this before? Is it an actual risk? Oh, absolutely. Uh, curve steepening is the question really for the next, at least the next six months, if not for uh, an extended period into 2021, which is why it's so interesting that this week we absorbed the long part of the Treasury supply. Their uh, Treasuries were sort of left Um, by the side of the road during the stock market um, excitement during the second quarter. And now treasuries aren't necessarily rebounding, but they're certainly getting a lot more attention than they did over the previous two months. Mm. So Jim, we're, you know, right now, given where we stand, given kind of the economic outlook, given some of the uncertainties about some of these states that are seeing a surge in cases, where do you see value or opportunity uh, in in the fixed income markets today? Uh, You have to pay very careful attention and try to find the best corporate bonds that you can. If you are uh, trying to produce a little bit extra yield, you've got to consider lower coupon mortgage-backed securities. But then in terms of the all-important yield curve strategy, all of our work this week that tested different scenarios suggested that concentrating around the seven-year it's a great place for an awful lot of intermediate bond portfolios to concentrate. Around the seven-year, that's interesting. Well, who who would they be? Talk to us about flows. Uh, Brian Chapata had a nice column today about pension funds and you know how it's conceivable that they could actually sort of do to debt markets what they used to be able to do or are able to do to equity markets, and that is move the market. Did you see it? What did you make of uh, that idea, or what do you make of that idea, Jim? Uh, Pension funds are critical, particularly at the long end of the market. They are critical uh, to the credit um, markets in terms of their demand there. But in terms of current flows, the massive size away from the Fed is from households uh, that have uh, basically put their their spare cash, uh, to the extent it's not in stocks, uh, into mutual funds and into bank deposits. The bank deposit growth even taking out some of the stimulus payments, et cetera, has been extraordinary this year. Jim, you know, it's, uh, we're several months into this pandemic and several months into the economic fallout from it. What's your thought about credit quality? Are we seeing, we're going to see the banks report next week and they're going to set aside some more big reserves, 
But as you look across your portfolio, are you starting to see some uh, concerns as it relates to credit quality? Not yet, because the big worry about credit quality in a recession is that the taps get turned off too quickly. And so that it's really not a credit problem, it's a liquidity problem. And that's certainly what aggravated the financial crisis 12 years ago. Here, we've got plenty of liquidity, thanks to the Fed and to the flows that we've already talked about. And so we will not see the, um, the real credit problems outside specific industries develop probably until early part of next year. So we'll be looking for signs that credit might deteriorate, uh, but right now people have have banked, in effect, so much debt on their balance sheet that they won't need to come to market uh, to to raise new funds uh, unless they unless the economy improves and they start spending those dollars again. Jim, what coronavirus data do you watch to give you any hint about what might happen in the Treasury market? We look very carefully at uh, transmission rates by state. We look very carefully at uh, what we call real-time mortality rates and how they are shifting as Sunbelt states undergo uh, a tremendous increase in their cases. And the bond market has been watching, in effect, a slower pace of COVID-19 statistics compared with the stock market that reacts every single day to daily data. Unfortunately, from an economic perspective, daily data are just too erratic and have too many reporting lags and errors uh, to really be a dependable source for what's happening in the bond market. So right here, what are some sectors, Jim, may on the corporate side, you're mentioning might have to go to the corporate side to get some yield. Are there some sectors that you find attractive here? You've you've got to uh, keep looking at the pharmaceuticals. Obviously, the the tech sector never really needs cash, but there's an awful lot of attractive paper out there. And then you have to selectively uh, look at uh, lower-rated industrials when they get out of line uh, with stock market performance. So in particular, you want to uh, try to take advantage of wider uh, credit spreads down the curve or down the credit curve when uh, stock market volatility rises. Well, it's always a tutorial to speak with Jim Fogel, I have to say. Jim, thank you. How are things in Memphis, very briefly? Uh, quite well. Uh, we had a spike, as many places did in the South, um, in recent weeks, and that appears to have leveled off. Thanks. Well, stay safe. Jim Vogel is with FHN Financial Markets, and uh, obviously it's a primary dealer. And Jim yep. has been steeped in Treasury market activity for a, a little while now. Yeah, it's actually it's great to, to speak, speak to Jim and kind of looking at, uh, he's saying if you need yield here, you might have to look uh, on the corporate credit side, given where Treasury rates are. So we'll certainly pay attention to that. Coming up, Balance of Power with David Weston. For Vani Quinn, I'm Paul Sweeney, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
Well, I guess the narrative about the pandemic right now is one of trying to balance the medical risks of reopening the economy with the economic risks of not reopening the economy. And that's being played out uh, across the country uh, with varying effects. Lauren Sauer, uh, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Medicine, joins us on the phone. I should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us here. I think the conversation, one of the more recent aspects of this conversation is schools, reopening schools in the fall. What do you think is the most prudent um, path there? Yeah, so there's been a lot of conversation about schools and what it means and the pros and cons of reopening. I think everybody wants to see schools reopening, and we understand that not being in school and, and missing as much classroom time as they have is going to be detrimental to varying degrees to students and, and kids across the country and, and truly across the world. The thing is, we have to do it safely or else we'll just be back in this situation and it'll be even more disruptive in a few months or, ne- or next year. So we have to take the time of the summer to plan how to do it safely. Our schools don't have a ton of resources already. Um, so the idea that they could bring in additional resources to do all the things that are being asked of them to bring kids back safely is really hard. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that, uh, I mean, one child gets it and, and that's that school done for, 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 you know, for a long time, right, Lauren? Yeah, I think we're still trying to understand how it, how virus transmission happens in kids and what it looks like. We know that in general, kids seem to have less severe disease, um, but we are still doing a lot of work on how transmissible it is in kids and how they spread the virus. And we also have to think about the parents. Um, and the teachers and the administrators in these schools and how it could impact them if they have a sick kid who maybe is asymptomatic and brings the virus to school and then all of a sudden all your teachers are sick and several of your kids are sick and then their parents and their families get sick too. So, Lauren, what's the latest thinking on second wave? I mean, here in the New York metropolitan area, I think we've generally done quite a good job as well as uh, up in Massachusetts, even in Maryland and where where you are. is there is it the, is it still fair to think about a second wave? Because um, I, th- I look what's happening in California and Florida and Texas, and to me, that is not so much as a second wave, but almost their first wave, quite frankly. So how do how do we think about that? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think most places we're not feeling like we're out of the first wave. I think there's been a lot of talk about second waves. Um, But when we're seeing 60,000 cases or more across the country, um, you know, and having our our repeatedly having our our largest days of increased cases, um, it's hard to think about that as a second wave. Uh, I think there will be a second wave, but I think we have to get to the end of the first wave first. And I don't think we're there yet. Lauren, what do you make of the idea that airborne particles now should be looked at? The WHO had been, you know, refusing or at least sort of not really taking it up seriously. And there's a growing consensus now that perhaps it should. Yeah, several hundred scientists wrote a letter, I believe, to the New York Times um, indicating that they wanted the WHO to take the role of airborne particles more seriously in the spread of COVID-19. And I, I think... The guidance has changed a bit, and the WHO's thinking has changed a bit. Um, we are continually learning about the virus and how it spreads. I still do believe that droplet transmission, so those bigger droplets, are what's driving the bulk of transmission. And I think there is a role for 
aerosol transmission or airborne transmission, but it's in specific circumstances like inside, close quarters, things like singing or loud talking or yelling, um, places where the ventilation is not great. So there are specific circumstances where those are going to be the drivers. Those are that, that aerosol transmission is going to be the driver, but it's those very specific circumstances. Lauren, you are just mentioning the World Health Organization. How important is it that the U.S. is pulling out of the WHO? Um, I, I hope that that it doesn't happen. I, I think it's incredibly important to put resources towards making sure that it doesn't happen and that we truly evaluate the impact of a decision like that. Um, we will lose a lot of access to a lot of international expertise, a lot of international information, um, global collaboration around the exact thing that we are having such a hard time handling here in the U.S. right now. Um, so it will impact our ability to uh, manage and understand the the seasonal flu vaccines, um, the potential for COVID vaccines, uh, global therapeutic trials, all of those things um, the WHO has a very large role in. And we support the WHO and we participate through our relationship with the WHO and our role in the WHO. And so the idea that we would pull out simply because of a um, a disagreement on how this COVID-19 response has been managed by them is is truly unbelievable and very, very short-sighted. Briefly, Lauren, do you stop getting updates on on the latest science if you pull out of the WHO or are they not obliged to sort of share it with the world anyway? They're obliged to share it with the world, but but, and we would receive that information purely as a recipient, just like any um, anyone else. But we currently have a, a role at the table in decision making, in in primary information sharing and information gathering and supporting policy development, supporting operational response decisions. And all of those things, we would simply be on the receiving end of the actions, not um, as an active and willing participant and not as a, you know, a global public health authority. Um, so when you're not in the beginning edge of that conversation, uh, you have no say in how the conversation plays out until you're at the end of it. Wow. All right, Lauren, thank you. Always learn something new from our conversations. Lauren Sauer is Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies and Bloomberg News. So as Dave Wilson was telling us earlier, Michael Batnick at Ridholz Wealth Management talks about comparisons between US tech stocks gains and the bubble 20 years ago. I particularly want to bring this up with our next guest now. He's David Katz, Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Advisors with more than $800 million in assets under management. David, it is great to speak with you. I know that one of your sort of areas of expertise is the tech sector. You've obviously, you know, been following that area and the melt up for, for many years, decades even, and and you did like some of those stocks. What do you make of the idea that we might have a lot further to go if you look at comparisons between how the Nasdaq 100 soared in the five years leading up to the March 2000 peak and how it's it's been, quote unquote, soaring up to now? Yeah, we would not look at, at that and say, oh, good, you have five years and take comfort in the current melt-up because it ended hideously and it took 10 years for the Nasdaq to get back to break even. Uh, so we think the market's going to be higher over the next 9 to 12 months, but we're getting increasingly wary uh, about the tech melt-up right now, and we would not be using the higher stock prices every day as a signal to 
jump aboard. We think uh, best case, a lot of the returns have already been uh, made in that area. Uh, we think that they're a lot more risky in terms of the downside. And we do think there are lots of areas of the market that have been left behind entirely by the recovery and are selling a pretty attractive valuation. So you've got parts of the market at 30 and 40 times earnings, and then a lot of stock at 10 and 15 times earnings that are paying 3 and 4% yields. So we think investors should really focus on the the better businesses, but at lower valuations. Uh, you went through the bond numbers before. Interest rates are at zero. Bonds are paying less than a half a percent. At some point, uh, getting 3 or 4% dividends is going to be a really good thing. All right. So, David, what are some of those sectors that you think have been left behind that might offer some attractive risk return? So in, in terms of sectors, um, you know, we have not liked utilities for a very long time. They've been an outlier bad performer this year, so we've really warmed up to them and we've been buying in that group. We think you can buy select healthcare companies like a CVS or a Merck, uh, pretty attractive. Select consumer staples. We think the telecom companies like Verizon uh, and AT&T are very attractive. Also some media companies like a Comcast or a Viacom. So there are lots of really good businesses out there if you have a six or 12 month time horizon. And all the businesses that I mentioned are gonna be able to get through the COVID recession in very good form, have very good balance sheets and are survivors. You say that, David. Let me combat you with something a little devil's advocate if you like. So those telecoms, for example, we all know that there are problems right now in making content and in sort of fighting with all of these other streaming services to, to gain eyeballs. If COVID hasn't sort of made that go faster, then I don't know what will. What are you seeing across media and across telecom that makes you believe that, yeah, the, the particular companies you mentioned are in a better spot? Well, in, in terms of Comcast, you know, while they have uh, NBC, they also provide the pipes into the house. So that business is doing very, very well. So they're very well diversified. They're global. Uh, and as more people need the Internet uh, and as more people are sitting at home looking for something to watch on, whether it's a TV or a computer or your iPad, uh, they're a net beneficiary. So they've gone through this in very good form. Uh, have consistently raised the dividend. We really like management there. Uh, Viacom is is a little bit uh, different insofar as uh, they are a content producer and they've got a massive library in Paramount. Uh, You know, if you look at Netflix at 60 or 70 or 100 times earnings and at a 225 billion market cap, and then you look at Viacom with this massive content at a $13 billion market cap, at some point something's going to be better for them. They are doing quite well in terms of their earnings and running the business. Uh, CBS is a very strong franchise. And, you know, people are looking at content, whether it's uh, over the top, uh, whether it's, you know, linear or watching on television. Uh, they are looking for content. And, and at six and a half times earnings, you're not paying a lot for that. So, uh, David, let's just uh, switch gears real quickly to another sector that has really been out of favor, uh, and that is kind of some of this, that energy patch. I'm looking at WTI crude here, just about $40 a barrel. Anything there that gets uh, your attention? So uh, we have owned energy and and have been beaten up pretty badly. Uh, We think from here, if you have a 6- to 12-month time horizon, that there's a pretty good likelihood that when the economy recovers, oil prices will recover and those energy stocks will come back. Um, We try to stick to the highest quality energy companies. So CVX is absolutely committed to a very, very healthy yield. We think that stock could be 20% higher. Schlumberger, uh, which is, you know, the uh, top 
quality uh, driller uh, out there uh, is going to have pretty slow business, but they have revamped themselves. They are going to be positive cash flow. They definitely will be a survivor. And the stock's at 17 and a half. We think it ultimately goes to 30 or 40. So it's a very out of favor group. Uh, yep. Uh, but we think you're going to make money if you can hold your nose with it. There are other places that you can get in the market without that type of risk, but we do think if you are looking at energy and don't mind the risk, you'll do okay there as well. David Katz, thanks so much for joining us. David Katz, he is Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Advisors, about $800 million uh, in assets under management, getting his thoughts on the market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.